Good morning, church. Happy New Year to you. Welcome to 2023. It is, it is good to see you. How many made it to midnight last night? All right, yeah. I, I did. I don't always. I made it to midnight last night. So along with the rest of the hands that are raised, I can relate to the fact that I'm running on a little less sleep this morning. But praise God, his spirit and a ton of coffee is coursing through my veins right now. So we're going to we're gonna have a good time this morning. Buckle up. I'm ready to, I'm ready to do this. But um, hey, it's, it's really good to see you this morning. And, and like, we, uh, like we just talked about, I know that I don't have to do this, but I feel just compelled to, to open up with a confession. I got to make a confession to you this morning. And it's this. It's that my, my eyesight is not perfect, right? My vision is not perfect. My eyes are not what they once were. As I've gotten a little bit older, it's degraded a little bit, right? And I, and I say that kind of half kidding, the, the confession part, because it really doesn't take more than just a look at me to realize that, right? You can tell that my, that my eyes are not perfect. But the thing is, I, I haven't always worn these, these glasses. I've, I've had them actually only just for a fairly recent amount of time, about three years or so that I've, been, that I've been wearing them. And that's not because my eyesight started to go a little bit south three years ago, because as my, my lovely wife, Emma, will tell you, she, for a number of years, very patiently, but lovingly and firmingly, right, just continued to remind me, you need to go get your eyes checked. You need to go see somebody to get your eyes checked. And I don't know why, because a missed road sign here or there is not a big deal. I can always turn around. And just because I couldn't necessarily see the menu from behind this side of the counter to order my meal is not a big deal. That's what she's there for. She can help me to be able to order right, my meal for me or something. <laughs> but no, it, it, necessar- it wasn't necessarily part of my, my need to-do list to go get my, my eyes checked. But men, maybe you can relate. There comes, a, there comes a point in every man's life where, where something changes. You gotta take a stand, right? Something, something occurs and you say enough is enough. And I can recall that moment in my life because it was about three or so years ago and on a, on a crisp fall Wednesday evening, I had to confront the brutal facts in my life. As this left fielder stood out there and realized he could no longer see that softball when it got hit toward him. Listen, don't laugh. There are a lot of things that that you can mess with in my life, but softball, that crosses a line, right? So I, I said to myself in that moment, okay, I've got to go see someone. So I I made an appointment. I made an appointment to go see the optometrist. And if you've if you've ever been been to the optometrist, you know what that looks like. You, you go in there, and one of the things they do, if we put a, a picture up on the screen here, is they roll this bad boy over your face. Look at how attractive that looks, right? They put this thing over your face, and then if you're familiar, you know what happens, right? Go ahead and look through it. Look at the letters that are on the wall, and then click, click, click. And that pile of letters starts to become a big pile of mush at first, of ink on the wall, and then click, 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 one or two, this or that. And then all of a sudden, that big pile of mush, of ink that's on the wall starts to now separate and become these crisp, well-defined letters. 
It's a beautiful thing because you start to realize that the world looks differently than you'd been experiencing, right? You start to realize that things are getting a little bit sharper for you. And it's my hope this morning that that click, click, clear vision process is something that we'll be able to start experiencing today, January 1st, as we, as we enter into a, a new year. Some of us in the room have been Christians for decades. Some of us in the room might say we just, just recently made a decision for Christ within the past week. And either way, it's my hope that our perspective on following Jesus and on things, circumstances in our life, both near and far, will start to become a little bit clearer for us this morning. So we're going to spend a little bit of time today in a passage out of Luke. And in this passage out of Luke 23, I'll just set up a little bit of context for you. It begins to speak about in some poignant and frankly painful terms the crucifixion of Jesus, at least the, the beginning part of it. At this point, in the narrative that we're about to read, Jesus has been through trials. He's been beaten. He's being mocked. And now he's been laid, he's had a cross laid upon him, and he's walking down the, the Via Dolorosa through the streets of Jerusalem. And apparently, by what we read, we come to the conclusion that he can no longer carry that cross. His, his physical body is now succumbing under the beating and the, and, the, and the stress that's been laid upon his body. And someone is being enlisted or summoned to carry this cross for him. So if you would join me in Luke 23, and we'll put it up on the screen, beginning in verse 26, it says, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people, of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? The context of this is, again, Jesus is being led through the streets, being led away to his own crucifixion. Let's put verse 26 now with some highlights up on the screen so that we can kind of focus in. It says, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So we've got this guy. And he's now had this cross laid upon him. And he's following behind Jesus. Does that sound familiar? It should, hopefully, because a couple of other times earlier in Luke's gospel account, he's already painted this picture a couple of times as being the teaching of Jesus. You want to be on my team, Jesus said? You want to be on God's team? It's time to deny yourself. It's time to pick up your cross. And you follow me. Right? So he's already said this. Now, is it any coincidence that Luke would word it again this way for us as he paints this picture? Here's the first takeaway that I want us to, to focus in on this morning, and it's this. 
Jesus follower, step out of the crowd. It's time to step out of the crowd. This guy, Simon, he's physically called out of the crowd, out of his schedule, out of his agenda, out of the things that he was planning on doing that day, out from the other relationships that he's with, and he's called to come carry a cross, probably at the tip of a Roman spear. You, get out here. Come pick up that cross and follow him. We'd be missing a point if we didn't make the connection that that's exactly the same call that you and I have on our life as we follow Jesus. If we want to be on God's team, we, we take a step out of the crowd and we follow Christ. We're willing to take up a cross. And yes, that, that's a symbol. We're not talking about necessarily picking up an actual cross and walking with it today. But here's what it does mean. It means that we're willing to step out of the crowd and face whatever comes our way. Mocking, being made fun of, being ridiculed, being excluded, because I'm following with him. Hey, Simon, this is about to be uncomfortable for you. You're about to go on this shameful parade, Simon, and as you walk behind this Jesus with a cross, you're going to be laughed at. They're laughing at Jesus, but it's still going to fall on you. You're going to get spit on, Simon. They're aiming their spit at him, but you're going to catch it as well. Because now you're in proximity and you're associated with him. Keep that in mind. This walk you're about to go on, Simon, is going to be uncomfortable because you are associated with him now. It's also... Uh, it's really interesting, I find, that Simon is named here. There are so many unnamed characters throughout the Bible that whenever the gospel writer, the writer in, in Scripture, takes the time to specifically mention the name of somebody, it should pique our attention as to why. Mark also makes note of him. Let's, let's see what Mark says. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why would Mark write it this way? There's this, there's this sense that Mark knew that the readers would know which Simon he was talking about. This isn't just any Simon that I'm talking about. I'm talking about this Simon. Alex and Rufus is dead. That's the Simon who I'm talking about. Take a quick jump with me over to Romans. 16. It's the only other time that we see the name Rufus in Scripture. And Paul writes this. This is years later now. As Paul is writing to the Christians in the city of Rome, and he writes, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. In the early church, it seemed that they knew who Rufus and Alexander and Simon were. These aren't just any characters. These aren't just historical figures that are mentioned in a story, but we get this sense that this guy, Simon, not only did he step out of the crowd to physically carry a cross, but it seems he also spiritually stepped out of a crowd, and he was counted with Christ that day. Because at least in this passage, if we're talking about the same guy here, his wife and his kids become followers of Christ as well years down the road. It seems so random. 
He probably wasn't a believer yet. Simon wasn't a believer. He had come in, he had just traveled a long distance, roughly eight, 900 miles, coming in from the area known as Cyrene, which is today uh, modern-day Libya, so North Africa, makes a long trek into the city of Jerusalem. He's coming in for the festival, for the Passover feast. It's just what you did as a devout Jew. And he's coming in, and all of a sudden, he sees this crucifixion going on. He goes to see what's happening, and this big Roman soldier comes and puts a spear in his face and says, you get out here and carry this criminal's cross. It seems so random, but listen to me, it's not random at all, and neither is your call to follow Christ. Let me point to one more passage that highlights this non-randomness, and it comes out of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I know that sometimes in your own story, and even as I tell my own story, Sometimes it can get so lost that I can feel, maybe you feel, that it was just random that one day you got plucked out of your crowd, that one day you got called upon, right? But it wasn't random at all. As I tell my story, right, I cannot deny the feeling that there was a point in my life where I got wrestled to the mat by the Spirit of God, <laughs> where I just couldn't do anything else but say, God, I don't want to fight you anymore, <laughs> There's only one thing that I can do, and that's surrender to you. How do I know that feeling? I am a younger sibling. I have one older brother. He's five years older than me. He's also a lot bigger than me. We would wrestle as kids, and if you can imagine, I was not much of a match for my brother. So I knew the feeling of getting pinned down over and over and over again. And so there was this moment, right, for me where I knew that God's spirit had been pursuing me, pressing down on my heart, pinned me to the mat, and I said, God, I am yours. It's this picture of God choosing you, drawing you in, and putting you into place. I want you to put yourself in Simon's shoes for just a moment. Remember, if this is the same guy that we've just read about in Scripture, we see that his wife, that his kids eventually come to Christ. And perspective looks at that and says, we got to say it was so worth it. It was so worth it for him to have been called out, for him to have been mocked, for him to have been spit on, for him to have been made fun of as he walked with that cross along the road. It was worth it. But we're all Christians here in the room, right, Jordan? So why are you... Why are you talking about this? We're all Christians. We all get it. And I, I, I totally understand. I, I agree because I, I really do believe that many of us in the room here this morning, right, have surrendered to Jesus and are walking with him, right? And we have a beautiful story of his redemption in our life. But do your neighbors know that? Do your friends know that? Do your coworkers know that? Are you out from behind the bunker, and are you above the radar with your faith in such a way that they know that it's more than just a sticker on my car, it's more than a Bible verse in my email signature, but that I am on the road and I am walking with Jesus. 
we need to step out in order to follow him. Let's continue along to verse, go back to our passage. We're going to go to Luke 23, now verse 27 and 28. So he says, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Five words. Do not weep for me. We're going to unpack that in just a moment, but, but here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't weep for me, right? Because there's something greater ahead for me. There's something that's up ahead, and what is that? Well, in John 17, we read about him talking to the Father, and he says, restore to me, Father, the glory that I had with you even before the world existed. Jesus says, I know where I'm going. And I love the way the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 12, verse 2, when he says this, if we could put that up. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So yeah, Jesus, he looks at those crowds, he looks at those people, and he says, I can see with clarity the joy set before me. Here's our next point. Anticipate our promised future. We need to anticipate our promised future. Can we take a look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 7? And here's what Paul writes again, talking about Jesus and what he went through. He says, but he, Jesus, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the midst of a humiliating slave's death, a humiliating criminal's death, Jesus still says, don't pity me. You don't have to ache for me. He says, it's okay. It doesn't end here for me. I'm about to get the name. I'm about to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And church, listen, he is seated there today. And he exists in a glorified body. And he is coming back. And the Bible says that when he comes back, if you are a child of his, he's going to exercise his power upon you to give you that same kind of glorified body that he has, and you're going to join with him. This is the part where you amen about a glorified body, right? About a glorified body. <laughs> there we go. He's coming back. The application here is for you and I to run our race with endurance. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that, here's why, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
When Paul writes to Timothy, his protege, to encourage him as well, he says, if we endure with Christ, we're going to reign with Christ. And that's good news this morning. We must anticipate our promised future. So let's jump back to Luke and let's move ahead in our passage. Now, verse 29. For behold, the days are coming. This is Jesus now still saying to these women who are mourning and they are weeping for him. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? That is probably not a verse you learned as a kid or in Awana or something like that, right? For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? A lot of commentators and scholars, many of them would agree that this particular verse right here, 31, has a sense of purposeful ambiguity to it. And it's not because God is seeking to be just mysterious with us for, for, for no reason, but it's because there are a number of different potential applications that could come out of this, depending on who's reading it and what questions they might be asking, right? For if they, who's they, do these things, what things? When the wood is green. Now we're talking about wood. Who or what is the wood? I love, let's start with this part right here. Let's start with this back part, this, the wood, and we'll work our way back. I love a good campfire. Right? I've, got a, I've got a fire pit built in my backyard as well. You know, there's one thing that I never throw in that fire pit in order to start a good fire. You know what that is? Green wood. <laughs> because it's wet. <laughs> because it's got moisture in it. And really, because it's hard to burn. It's not going to burn very easily. And in this case, it's a, it's a metaphor, right? That green wood is innocent. It's good. It's Christ. What about that dry wood? That's what I throw in my fire pit because that's ready to burn. That's easy to burn. And so Jesus, as he speaks to these crowds, he's drawing a comparison between himself and between the crowds. And he's saying, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. Rather, you might want to weep for yourselves. And there are a number of different ways that we can take this, right? For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Here are a couple of different examples of, of what most believe this could apply, right? One of the things we could be talking about is the Roman response. Jesus could be looking at the crowds and he could be saying, look at what the Romans are doing to me. I'm a little worried about what they're going to do to you because I'm hard to hate. It's not easy to dislike me because I'm innocent, but I'm a little worried for you and what they're gonna do to you because they're gonna have a ton of reasons to hate you and your rebellion. And sure enough, within just a few decades after this would be said, and after a number of uprising revolts, back and forth between the Jewish people versus the Romans, the Romans finally said, enough. And they laid waste to the city. And in 70 AD, they, they tore everything down. So one of the things that Jesus could be speaking about here is saying, hey, look at what the Romans are doing to me. You might want to consider what, what they might do to you. 
Another thing that they might be, that Jesus could be saying here is he could be talking about the they, could be the, the Jewish leaders, right? It was the Sanhedrin that really pushed forward his, his execution here. And so the, these things could be Jesus saying, listen, if, if the Jews are doing this to me now, what's going to happen when God responds in the biggest way possible? And the last piece could just, differ. The, la- the third way could ju- just kind of be a, a little bit of a general thing. It could be the Jewish people, it could be the Romans, it could be everybody else. Jesus is really saying, if this is what sinful people will do to an innocent man and to Greenwood, I'm concerned about what might happen to you. Those are three ways that we can understand it. Again, most believe that it's purposefully ambiguous here, but here's the, the point, right, for us today. I don't believe, unless anybody wants to raise their hand, that anybody here is concerned about a Roman takeover of our, of our city today, right? Nobody's concerned about that. But there is an inbound coming reality of God's judgment. And that leads Jesus to say, don't weep or pity or ache for me. Pity yourselves. Now, why do I say all that? And what's the, what's the tie-in with the perspective piece? Because if you're here in the room today and you've been walking with Jesus for some time, it's very easy, and it can be easy for me too, to look at something like this with a non-focused lens and say, well, I'm a believer, so I'm good. I got it. doesn't really necessarily apply to me. But Jesus follower, unless you are in heaven right now, standing in the physical presence of God for eternity, then the reality is that you've got non-believing people all around you every single day. And when you're surrounded by that and you know the eternity that's at stake, right, it should propel us or compel us to have great concern for those who don't know Jesus around us. And so here's our final point for today. Be burdened for the world. Be burdened for the world, not burdened by the world. There's a difference. We are called to not be burdened by the world. However, if the Spirit of God resides within you and continues to work on your heart, the natural effect of that is is that there should be a concern and an ache for those who are around us who don't know Jesus. There should be an anguish within us. We should anguish over those who don't know the same hope that you and I know. That crowd pitied Jesus, and in his suffering, he turns it around and he says, you actually should pity yourself. Here's the the reality for you today. If you're a Jesus follower, the world pities you, and the world pities me too. Why is that? Because according to the world, you and I have checked our brains at the door for this nonsense. Right? And, and I hope that what they see within you and what they see within my life is a real struggle and a real battle right? that's waged every single day against the things that the world says that we should have. Fun, success, the things that are worthy of pursuit and identity and value, the things that we should be going after. They see us not jumping in on those things and they say, Man, you are missing out. Wouldn't want to be that guy, <laughs> right? And that's biblical, right? That is actually biblical. I get it, right? First Corinthians, I don't have this for the screen, but Paul says it this way. Paul's writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
we are of all people most to be pitied. And he's right. Because if this life that we're here living together in community, and this God that we're worshiping, and this life of non-promoting myself but promoting Jesus, of not looking out just for me but looking out for others, of this life of radical love and generosity, if it's really about nothing else beyond this life, and we're all gonna share in the same eternity anyway, you ought to pity us. I ought to be pitied, right, at this point. Matter of fact, a few chapters earlier in the same letter, Paul said this, we are considered the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. There's a title that's gonna sell a lot of Christian books. Scum of the world, refuse of all things by Jordan Carroll, right? That's not going to sell any copies of books, right? Because we're supposed to want success. We're supposed to want popularity and prosperity. We're supposed to want all of these things that the world says that we should have. But the reality is, is that you and I aren't exempt from evil. And we're not exempt from loss. And we get sick. And we deal with unemployment. And we fight temptation. And we experience loss of relationships too. We'll lose relationships over our faith. Guys talking to you in the room, right? This might mean that we don't get to be part of the boys club at work sometimes or in the locker room. Ladies, this might mean that you don't necessarily get the invite sometimes because you're, you're unwilling to engage in the gossip or speak on the things that others are, right? And that happens. And yet, even though following Jesus is not an easy or a glamorous way to live, it's this following of Christ that provides that click click, clear vision process that we need to see the danger that's up ahead for so many around us. And when we see that danger and we know the eternity that's at stake, your heart and my heart should be overwhelmed with thankfulness for our own security in Christ and it should propel us into greater obedience and motivate us to share the gospel like there's no tomorrow. But I might lose my relationship over it. You might but they're gonna think I'm crazy. They might. But church, hear me. If 99 people think that you are weird or pushy because you can't help but speak about what Christ has done in your life, the 100th will be there. And that person will turn from their sin and they'll embrace Jesus. And at some point, 100 or so years from now, you and that person will stand face to face and you'll be able to look at them with indescribable joy and you'll say, I was glad to sacrifice my reputation. I was glad to be considered a lunatic by the world. Because if it means that you and I get to spend eternity together worshiping our creator, it was all worth it. When we're sincerely burdened for the world, it will create in us this motivation to share the gospel. Keeping our eyes healthy long enough to be able to see things well, near and far spiritually is not easy to do. And I've learned the same is true for me physically as well. It's commonly known that a lot of our vision problems that, that people experience today have something to do with the fact that we spend a crazy amount of time 12 to 18 inches away from a screen. And most people will encourage you that if you want to combat what the effects of that, you got to lift your eyes up. 
you got to scan out at things of varying distances. And you can't become so fixated on that thing that's right in front of you. And the same is true for us spiritually. Scripture tells us that we're not to get fixated on the immediate circumstances of our lives. We need frequent breaks. We need to lift up our heads and we need to scan out on the horizon to see the coming Christ, to see his coming kingdom, and to notice lost and hurting people that are all around us that don't yet know about it. I'm gonna pray for us.